Marijuana had come to symbolize much more than a cheap high. Public concern over cannabis or Indian hemp in the United States had originated in the Southwest and had been steadily increasing since the end of the First World War, when it had appeared on the Texas border as Rosa Maria, and black cavalrymen stationed along the border were known to indulge in its use. California and Utah were the first states to criminalize its use in 1915. Texas followed in 1919 and by 1936 pressure was mounting for the federal government to ban it, even though 38 of the 48 states had already enacted bans by that time. For 15 years, authorities throughout the Southwest had been lobbying Washington to do something about it. Headlines like the following, taken from the November 5, 1933 issue of the Los Angeles Examiner, had been appearing in newspapers across the country. Murderweed found up and down coast. Deadly marijuana dope plant found ready for harvest that means enslavement for California children. By 1935, the city of El Paso, then being frequented by Depression-era tourists looking for cheap thrills, had already been identified as a hotbed of marijuana fiends. Mexicans, Negroes, prostitutes, pimps, and a criminal class of whites. Add to this hotbed of fiends the twelve-year-old son of the local pharmacist, After that incident, I went back to Fort Worth. It was this black guy that delivered big chunks of ice for the refrigerators. He would come every day, and I was supposed to pay him and give him his two dollars for the last week. And when I came back with the money, I guess he thought he was going to have a little time, because there he was, smoking his joint. I came out of the back porch screen door and saw him doing it, just the same way that C.K. had taught us. Gotta suck it in with a lot of air, and he would make this, like... Viper sound as he did it. I guess I surprised him. He saw the way I was watching him and said, Well, now, don't guess you'd be interested in this sort of thing. Oh, I said, is that local wheat? He laughed and said, Well, I don't know if you'd call it that, you know, still holding his breath in. We call it gauge. Of course, being a Texas kid, I was still very much in a segregationist mindset, but I asked him if he had any to sell. Well, I ain't no pusher, he said, but I'll give you some. And so he gave me a couple of joints, and there I was, holding for the first time. I remember this wonderful, mischievous feeling came over me, and I had a friend and invited him over, and we smoked. By that time, you could say I was actually getting a good buzz, and all these strange and funny things were starting to happen. 2. The marijuana he smoked had no immediate outward effect on Terry Southern's life. He still did the same things he had always done as a boy, still loved odd creatures like tarantulas and armadillos, hunting and fishing, and riding horses under the endless Texas skies. When he went to Sunset High in Dallas, he played quarterback on the football team and first base on the baseball team, and did his best to get the pretty cheerleaders into the back seats of cars. But as he started smoking with more frequency, he became increasingly more interested in exploring the central track area of Dallas. It was the part of the city called Niggertown, Southern pointed out. And as soon as I was able to make that connection, I realized that smoking was something that I had in common with black people. It brought out that identification, and I would meet more and more of them. I began to see that the effect of this gauge was very different indeed from the vodka and grapefruit juice that we drank. 
Sure, we know about the Mexicans and the blacks doing it, but it was a part of their culture, not ours. What white people smoked pot? My God! I mean, these were just very sporadic occurrences. There was no continuity to them or anything. And yet, I have to say, they completely altered my life. As I became more aware of black people, I found myself really trying to appreciate and understand them in a way I never had before. In his 1992 novel, Texas Summer, Southern describes the central track area as a dusty place of lean-to shacks beside which great black charred iron washpots steamed in the Texas sun above raging bramble fires, and black people sat or squatted in front of these ramshackle front porches, making slow cabalistic marks in the dust with a stick, or gazing trance-like at the road in front of them. The nigger town he wrote about in the novel was the site of crap games and dingy little bars like...